Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, April 17th, 2009. I'm Alana Ranke. Of all the injuries we experience as humans, one of the most traumatic is one to our spinal cord. Not only are our spines the information highways of our body, they're also irreplaceable. When injured, the nerves in our spine can't regenerate, and this results in the paralysis commonly associated with spinal cord injuries. So is there hope for people with spinal injuries? Mary Philbin thinks so. She's a distinguished professor at Hunter College on Manhattan's Upper East Side, and she researches how the nerves in our central nervous system grow. Her discoveries have led to some groundbreaking research that's en route to a cure. So this week, we visit her lab to check it out. In May of 1959, British novelist and physicist C.P. Snow delivered his infamous Two Cultures lecture. What he didn't know was that the gap between science and the humanities he so vividly described would still persist 50 years later. That's why, on May 9, 2009, Science in the City, the Science Communication Consortium, Science Debate 2008, and Discover Magazine bring you Two Cultures in the 21st Century, a full-day conference bringing together visionaries, scientists, authors, and the media to explore the persistence of the two cultures gap and how it can be overcome. Join Pulitzer Prize winner E.O. Wilson, former Congressman John Porter, Segway inventor and entrepreneur Dean Kamen, and many others at this historic event. For more information and tickets, please visit www.nyas.org forward slash two cultures. Hey, how can I help? Get this man a helmet. Oh, you. Forget the helmet. How bad is it? My God, Superman, it's a nightmare. Everything in there is either explosive or flammable or worse. That was a scene from the 1983 release Superman 3. Christopher Reeve, clad in the classic superhero spandex, heroically saves chemical factory workers from an infernal blaze. Reeve was known for many things. During the first half of his life, his acting. And during the second half, his pivotal role in advocating a cure for spinal cord injury. In 1995, Reeve was bucked off a horse and paralyzed from the neck down. Most injuries like his have no cure, but cutting-edge research in the field is sprouting new hope for people with spinal cord injuries. Marie Philbin is a distinguished professor at New York's Hunter College in the biology department. She studies the growth of nerves in our spine, and last week I visited her lab on the Upper East Side. So we'll go on a little walk around. Okay, perfect. And, uh, all right, where will we start? This is... This is where we do our molecular biology, and this is Lena, very senior postdoc. Philbin has been studying our spines for more than 25 years, and her research is built around the fact that the nerves in our spine don't naturally regenerate if they're injured or severed. This is unlike other nerves in our body, which will regenerate. There are two possibilities why this doesn't happen. Number one is that with development, adult neurons have lost the capacity to regrow their nerves once cut. They grow during development, they make contact with their targets, but maybe as they grow older, they're not supposed to be cut, 
and they just lose that ability. The other possibility is that they can regrow, but the environment of the injured spinal cord and brain is stopping them from regrowing. And about 50 years ago, there were very few people working on spinal cord injury or nerve regeneration because people thought it was an intractable problem, it was too difficult to work with, and the people, the scientists who were working on it, we're doing more observations. What happens after a spinal cord injury? What are the changes? How do those nerves appear? How do the other cells of the spinal cord or brain, how do they react to the injury? It wasn't until 1981 that we answered the question, not we as in me, but answered the question of whether it was an intrinsic inability to regrow with age or was it the environment? The answer was the environment, and the discovery was made by Albert Aguayo at McGill University. Aguayo took a piece of peripheral nerve tissue, the kind that we'd find in our hands or our feet, and grafted it into a section of damaged tissue from the spinal cord. What resulted was that the spinal nerves grew into the grafted tissue, but couldn't grow past it. This proved that the nerves in our spine are indeed capable of regeneration, but it's the environment around them that prevents normal regrowth. So when that observation was made in the early 80s, a lot of other groups then started to ask, what are these inhibitors? What is stopping this nerve from regrowing? So nerves in the spinal cord, well, most nerves, nerves in the brain, spinal cord, peripheral nervous system, are myelinated. That means they have a membrane which wraps around them and insulates them and allows the signal to travel down the nerve very fast. When the nervous system is intact, this myelin, it's, if you think of it like a kitchen roll, okay? The nerve is the cardboard inner tube and the myelin is the paper. So that's what it looks like. It looks like layers of membrane wrapped around the nerve. As I said, when the nervous system is intact, myelin is a good thing. It helps the signals go down the nerves very fast rapid conduction. However, when you damage the nervous system, the central nervous system, you crush it or break it open or cut the nerves, myelin debris is then exposed to the nerve that's trying to re regenerate. It was Martin Schwab who first suggested and demonstrated, yes, myelin was inhibitory for nerve growth, for regeneration. The question then was what exactly about myelin made it inhibitory for growth? Philbin's team identified a protein in myelin called myelin-associated glycoprotein, or MAG. MAG acts as an inhibitor for spinal nerve growth. When it's around, nerves can't grow. The idea initially was, could we just block this inhibitor and stop it interacting with the nerve so that it could no longer inhibit? But that didn't seem to be such a good idea because you'd have to block many of these inhibitors that have subsequently been identified. MAG was the first inhibitor to be identified when we did it. So we took a different approach. What we decided to do was to try and change the nerve from inside such that it no longer recognised these inhibitors. It would just grow right through this inhibitory environment. And we spent many years screening lots of different compounds and agents to see if they could get these neurons to grow in an inhibitory environment in the presence of mag or myelin when we grew them in culture. We took them out and grew them in culture. And we tested, oh, scores of different agents. 
and only one worked. And that was a molecule which is present in every cell in our bodies. It's called cyclic AMP. And we found that when you elevated cyclic AMP within the neuron, the neuron was no longer inhibited by any of the inhibitors. It grew right through them. More importantly, when we elevated cyclic AMP in a rat's neurons, we find that those neurons, when we cut they, their axons, the nerve is the axon, they grew, they regenerated. Not very far, but they regenerated. So why not just pump up spinal nerves with tons of cyclic AMP? Unfortunately, it's not so easy, says Philbin. Cyclic AMP does a million things in cells. It's what's called a second messenger. It's a signaling molecule. So you get a signal from the outside of the cell, and you get a cascade of events, and it tells the the cell what to do. Nerve cell, a glial cell, fibroblast cell, anything, skin cell. So cyclic AMP then triggers a whole set of events itself, and it can do many different things. For nerve regeneration to overcome these inhibitors, we probably don't need to activate all these pathways. It's not a good thing maybe to activate them globally because some of them may be detrimental. Using cyclic AMP, we now had a handle on something that we knew could encourage regenerate. So now what we're working on is what's downstream? What is cyclic AMP doing to allow the nerve to regrow in this inhibitory environment? And we're getting more and more precise so that perhaps we can just activate the pathways that are necessary for regeneration and not all of them, and some of them are not needed. Back in Philbin's lab, she takes me to meet one of her postdoc students who's helping to isolate exactly what processes cyclic AMP is responsible for. I'm Christine Kane. I've been a postdoc here with Mari Philbin for five years. Dr. Christine Kane. Doctor. So I'm looking at the ability of cyclic AMP to induce mRNAs to move from the soma of a neuron to the axon of a neuron where they may be translated, which is different than the classical paradigm whereby mRNAs are all translated in the soma. And mRNAs the make the proteins. Right. And the proteins are then transported out like to different into parts the of the cell. So mRNAs are made in the, in the, in the cell. cell body, in the neuronal cell body. And they can be translated into a protein there, and most of them are. But what Chris is looking at is there's a question of whether the RNA is transported out into the nerve. Which is a fast process. Yeah, before it's translated, so that you can get very fast production of a protein. So we think there may be an effect of cyclic AMP in inducing some RNAs to go out there And that may be part of the the mechanism that cyclic AMP uses to overcome inhibition. And so this is is what you were talking about earlier, where you're trying to to discover the the sort of process. Right, different steps. Cool, so you're part of one of the steps. Right, and it's significant because when you have a spinal cord injury, we would like to be able to one day treat the site of the injury in a very specific way. So if we know that there are certain proteins that need to be there at the injury to... Uh, allow neurons, axons to regrow, then we could maybe possibly treat them right there instead of treating the whole cell or the back of the cell body or yeah. someplace glo- or a global treatment yeah. that would have many more effects other than specifically at the axon, at the injury site. 
In the tissue lab across the hall, Philbin's team works with rat neurons to test how they grow in the presence of inhibitors like MAG and how cyclic AMP works to counter MAG's inhibitory effects. Okay, so now we're in the tissue culture lab. Ah. No animals today, ladies? You just finished? Yeah, about an hour ago. Oh, dear. So now they've isolated the neurons, and they're in this liquid. No, that's the media that we grow them in. That's the nourishment. And now she's sucking them up and down so that they tend to clump together, and you want them all to be single. And then we grow them in... So Philbin's team harvests neurons from rat pups and puts them in a solution which will help them grow. Philbin takes me to what looks like a giant refrigerator just around the corner and pulls out a tray of growing neurons. It looks like a miniature ice cube tray filled with pink Kool-Aid. Oh, refrigerators. No, incubators. Oh, hot. Body temperature. Can you look down the microscope? Can you see anything? No, these are just, these are waiting to be... Uh, oh, there are no... So we put the neurons in there. Oh, cool. Into those little wells and grow them. Those, um, they have mag coated on their surface or not. Ah. So we compare the inhibition. Down the hall, Philbin takes me to a little windowless room with two huge microscopes. We're going to look at some of the rat neurons from the tissue lab that have been given various treatments in attempts to get them to grow in the presence of mag. Now we're in a room with a microscope, a big microscope. Two so, microscopes. Two. Yeah. So what we're going to show now is, so what, um, what we do is we look down the microscope and we have, this is, do you remember those little wells we showed you? Mm-hmm. Where we grow the neurons and yep. then we can rip off the top so that they're really flat now. Ah. And then we can stain them with a fluorescent dye so we can really see them and see the process and the nerves. And here we are. So So Don has already taken this image and saved it on the computer. So this, just show the cell body, the neuronal cell body is there. So it's bright green. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you can see that there's like a concentrated sort of green ball. Right. These are skin cells, fibroblasts, that we induce to make mag. (sighs) So these are growing in the presence of mag. They're growing on top of mag. And they're putting out, and you've treated them with what? Uh, This is your siRNA. Yeah. Yeah, so they're growing quite long processes, which they're not expected exactly. to Exactly. But the treatment that Dawn did, it's a bit complicated, huh. but allows them to grow in the presence of mag. So oh, that's beautiful. That's a lovely one. That's a kind DRG. Of, they kind of look like lightning. Philbin's yeah. team is getting spinal neurons to grow, something that before the inhibitor mag was discovered was never a possibility. But we're talking about growth of a couple millimeters, not even inches. For people with spinal cord injuries who've lost the ability to walk, there's still a lot of research to be done. But Philbin says her research shows incredible potential for recovery in other areas. For spinal cord injured people, you automatically, the general public think, oh, their biggest desire is to walk again. And depending where the injury is, to get to walk again, the nerves would have to grow right down the spinal cord to innervate these nerves here that then go out and tell your legs and muscles to move. That's a very long distance, a couple of feet to to get them to regenerate. Now, but if you ask, there was a survey done with spinal cord injury people a couple of years ago, and it was a questionnaire. If you had a choice, what would be 
your ranking of what you would like restored. Number one was bladder function. Number two was sexual function. Being able to walk was way down the list for all the people. So, you know, before I started working in this field, I just thought, oh, that person can't walk. But there's a lot more going on. I mean, they, some, of them, some people are in constant pain and they don't really understand why, neuropathic pain. They obviously have no bowel function or no bladder function. If the lesion is high enough, like Christopher Reeve, they can't breathe alone. So there's a lot more going on. Um, now, in a way, rather than aiming to get people to walk again, maybe the distance we need to get axons or nerves to regrow is very short to restore bladder function. So maybe that we'll be able to see a functional recovery there before we get far enough to get people out of the wheelchairs and walking. So what keeps Philbin going? New discoveries. I have a great lab. Um, I, I still am very optimistic. You know, we made this discovery with cyclic AMP, being able to encourage regeneration. It was the first molecule ever to really change the, the neuron so that it could grow in an inhibitory environment. And I literally, I used to be so excited, I couldn't sleep at night. And then more recently, you know, we're still getting regeneration, but it's not so far. You get a little deflated. But you keep trying and hope that the next thing that you identify will be better. Or, more importantly, I collaborate with people who are doing combination therapies. Mm -hmm. We are not equipped to do that. We are more of an early stage. Identify the molecules, try to work out mechanistically how they work and then we do a very simple model a proof of principle of spinal cord injury and see if we can get those nerves to regrow then we collaborate with the experts who have perfected the model in in rats and mice that more closely mimics the typical injury you get in a in a human which is called a contusion and injury it's more like a, a crush it's very complex so I collaborate with Mark Tuzinski, and he is going to use a whole combination of all the agents or cell therapies that have been shown to have an effect individually, try them all together. If he gets a very robust effect, then he start eliminating them and see which ones are the really important ones. Now, that is a massive undertaking. It takes a year, at least, with a team of people to do those animal studies, but that's the type of thing that gets me excited now. For Science in the City, I'm Alana Rangi. Hi, this is Alana Rangi, producer and host of the Science in the City podcast series. I want to tell you something I bet you didn't know about Science in the City. We rely on your support to bring you great science content every week. From our weekly podcast to our successful event series like the Science of the Five Senses happening right now, and our exhaustive science events calendar. Ladies and gentlemen, this may come as a surprise, but none of this happens for free. We know it's a tough time, so we're not asking for much. In fact, $50,000 will fund our podcast series for the year. And if that sounds like a lot, think of it this way. If every one of our 5,000 weekly listeners just gave $10, we'd be set. So whether it's $10 or $100, your donations count. And we definitely hope you think Science in the City is worth giving to. 
Give today online at scienceandthecity.org slash donate. And from all of us here at Science in the City, thank you for your support.